Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you are new to our church, my name is Dave. I am privileged to serve as pastor here, one of the pastors, and uh, we've been working our way through a series on the Gospel of John. I've been away for a couple Sundays, traveling in Asia, and it's been a very taxing trip physically, but an amazing trip spiritually. I will share this week on Facebook some reports and images from that travel, and I'm just so grateful. I saw God out there uh, in some remarkable ways. I came home really amazed at our God, at what he's able to do and what he is doing, and freshly inspired uh, by my role here. I also, every time I travel, I come back just really remembering, seeing again, that you guys are far and away my favorite congregation. And I, I love preaching in other places, meeting new people, but coming home, like, I love our church at a depth I can hardly express to you, and I'm, I'm so grateful that this is our church family. I hope you're as grateful as I am because what we have here together with one another is truly something special, worth fighting for, worth guarding with all of our hearts. This Sunday, we've come to a very important passage in the Gospel of John. It's the passage for which our youth group is, in fact, named. I don't know if many of you know this, but the name of our youth group is not the youth group. It's the vine. And it's it's borrowed from this passage, this idea uh, that apart from Jesus the vine, we can do nothing. And so everything, our whole life, flows out of the connection we enjoy with Jesus Christ our Savior. This morning I want to take a look. I wanted to initially start by, by preaching off of John chapter 15, verses 1 through 17. And then I looked at my notes and I said, this is going to be like a three-hour message. So I shaved it down, and I'm going to just deal with verses 1 to 8. Even then, we'll see. But I'm going to just restrict myself to verses 1 through 8. And I want to keep things as simple and as clear as I possibly can today. So if you're a Bible nerd and you want to drill down to the granular details I'm going to disappoint you today, but if you really just want it to be simple and clear, I think we'll have something for you this morning. Amen? So let's look at the true vine, John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. Here's what the passage says. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, You will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, 
You are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. <clears throat> you know, growing up in Libertyville, we moved there after I finished the first semester of, of freshman year in high school. And so I, I went through high school and then my, all through college, grad school, until this present day, my parents have lived in Libertyville and they're going to sell that house this, this year. So I don't know why I'm so emotional about it, but it's the house I feel like I grew up in and it's not going to be in our family anymore and I'm grieving. That house has shaped so much of what I think of when I think of home. And my parents had... I. I I hesitate to say maintain because they didn't really maintain it. They had a tiny orchard in the corner, the northeast corner of our property. It was a large one-acre lot, and uh, in the corner of that property was a little orchard, about five apple trees and a pear tree. I think there was a cherry tree there at one time and a bunch of raspberry bushes. And so technically, we were supposed to have the Garden of Eden in the northeast corner of our yard, and I like fruit a lot. Apples I especially love. And so I was excited when we were moving, and I heard, we've got five apple trees in our backyard and a pear tree, which might be my second favorite. Until I looked at the trees and watched them for the first year, and I realized these are not really great apple trees, and it's not a great pear tree. Very little fruit grew on these trees, and the fruit that did grow came out mangled. I, I, I wish I, I would have taken more pictures, because because in the years since, my parents have chopped down all those trees except the pear tree. But the apples that these trees produced, I don't know if there was some radioactive water coming through. They were so gnarly looking. And they would fall off the trees. And they, they had like, I don't know how to describe it, but they were twisted and grotesque. And they would just fall off the tree and be discolored. And they would annoy me when I had to mow the lawn under the trees because they would get all caught up in the lawnmower. They were useless. And I remember that little orchard of ours being such a disappointment to me because I had pictured myself going in the backyard, a little bushel, and gathering apples, fresh apples every day and packing them in my lunch. And that never happened even once. One time, I took the best-looking apple off that tree. I tried, and it was so gross. So that's the feeling I had my first experience with owning a fruit tree. Then I met a missionary friend. And he lived in a place with a very warm climate. And he would talk with great passion about this mango tree that he had growing in his yard. I had no idea mango trees got this big. And when he talked about that mango tree in his backyard, he was no longer in the field, but he talked about that tree like a long-lost lover. He got a faraway look in his eyes, and he would say, Oh, Dave, that mango tree, it was like the love of God in the form of a plant. Every year around the right time, it would, its branches would be so heavy with fruit. And if you've ever tasted a mango, a good mango from the right part of the world, right off the tree, you know that what we get at Costco is not a mango. We are being lied to and cheated. If you've ever had a mango from the tropics right off the tree, you see the face of Jesus with every bite. I kid you not. I don't even like mangoes, or I, at least I didn't think I liked mangoes until someone, and I remember them offering it to me, 
try this, try this. I'm like, I really don't, because I'm thinking Costco mango, you know, that, that little slice up thing where you bite it and it's like a lemon, but it's got the consistency of a turnip and it's so gross. Then I put this mango in my mouth, an angel sang, and I got saved all over again. And, you know, it's just that kind of feeling. And if you've ever tasted it, you'll know what I'm saying. And for him, he said, this tree was so big and it had so many mangoes that even though we were tempted to be selfish and we're like, it's all ours, it would have rotted in our house before we got a chance to eat it all. It was that plentiful. It was overwhelming. We had to share with our neighbors because this tree just kept giving of its fruit. And it delighted us. It was like having this golden goose in the backyard. It kept giving and giving and giving until we were sick of mangoes. That's how much we ate. The way my friend felt about his mango tree is the way God feels about us when he looks at our lives and sees us bearing fruit. For God, the fruit that we bear, the spiritual fruit we bear in our lives is not a casual thing. It's not something that he says, it'd be nice if I saw a couple, you know, because technically the apple trees in my parents' yard bore fruit. But they weren't the kind of fruit that satisfied the owner. It was the kind of fruit that you look at and go, I know you could do better than this. Why don't you? It would delight me to see something more rich, more full, more tasty grow from your branches. And when God sees spiritual fruit being born in our lives, he delights in it the way my friend delighted in his mango tree. I think he talks to Jesus about it in heaven. I think he gathers the angels and plays the film of us and says, look at that. That's what I'm talking about. I think that's the heart that God has when he sees us bearing fruit. And when you read this passage carefully, you realize that God is not neutral on this subject of fruit bearing, spiritual fruit bearing in the life of the Christian. Now, don't get um, too worked up about measuring yourself and all that, because even the fruit that we bear ultimately is a function of the work of God in our lives. But there is a part we can play, and I want to talk very, very um, truthfully about that part that we play in the process of fruit bearing. I want to start with telling you what fruit is not. What have I done? Did I? Sorry, can you? Is that, what did I do? Okay. Can, can you guys, I'm going to stop touching this. Sorry. Thank you. What fruit is not? I'm going to just... Because the first question I have when I read a passage like this is, okay, fruit clearly matters to God. That's awesome. What is fruit? Because you can fill in the blank and make up whatever you want. Oh, fruit is like the number of people you lead to Christ. All the converts you're making, the disciples you're raising up, and some of us are like, the zero count? Others might say, oh, it's the holiness you exude and all that. So we have to know what is it and what is the function of fruit. Why does it matter so much to God that we bear fruit in our lives? It's clear it matters to him, but it's not always clear why. Do you ever have someone hold a standard over your life like your parents with grades or your boss with certain deadlines? And you go, okay, I get it. It matters to you. But why does it matter to you so much? Why are you so bent on me accomplishing this in this time frame by this measure? Why does it matter to you? Because if you don't know the why, it's very frustrating to have this measure impressed over you over and over again. You have to understand why fruit matters to God. And so let's start by understanding what it does not symbolize. 
what the fruit is not about. Look at how this passage starts out. Jesus tells his parable and he says, he is a vine and we are like branches growing off of that central vine and God the Father is like a gardener. So that's the setup for the parable. And then he says something kind of shocking. He says, those branches that don't bear fruit get cut off. Because this is supposed to be a fruit-bearing tree, and if a tree does not bear fruit on certain branches, those branches need to be cut off. And at first, that sounds awfully harsh. But we have to be careful to understand God's word in alignment with God's character. God is not cold. He's not so utilitarian that he looks at us and goes, you're not producing, heck, you're gone. That is not the heart of God. But what he does say is, I've told you it matters to me, that, that bearing fruit matters because it symbolizes something important. And if I don't see fruit in your life, that's because something that is upstream of that, something that it's evidencing, the fruit points to something else, and that thing is missing, and that is why that branch is being cut off. You know, we shouldn't be surprised by this. When we are supposed to have an effect and that effect never happens, we ourselves ought to be worried. Before anybody else says to you, why aren't you bearing fruit? Shouldn't you be the first person to be somewhat alarmed if you have joined and responded to a gospel that says, listen to the rich words of the gospel. When you receive Christ, you become a new person. You are, the old is gone. A new person takes the place of the old person you were. A new life is rising in you. A life that is truly life. The eternal life we'll enjoy in heaven begins now here on earth as we walk with Jesus and every day we're being made new. There's joy, there's patience, there's kindness, there's there's all these things that happen that are part of it. And if we don't see those things, should we not be the first people to sound the alarm and go, hold on. See, years ago, I bought this thing thing called joint juice from Costco. It was because my joints were starting to cause me some trouble. And I saw this thing at Costco that says joint juice. I'm like, Ding! I'm going to get that. And I read the package. It had so much, it held out so much hope. I thought, and this is probably me as a stupid consumer, not them as a bad manufacturer. But I thought I would drink this and like uh, Wolverine, I would feel adamantium start to coat all my joints. And I'd be, whoa. So I, I guzzled this very mediocre pomegranate flavored juice. Gross. It's don't ever buy joint juice for the taste. I promise you, it's terrible. So I'm chugging it, and I'm waiting. I'm so stupid. I'm like waiting, like, oh, nothing. No feeling, nothing. I go to play basketball. I'm still coming home. Oh, my gosh, my joints. I went through that whole case. <laughs> waiting, waiting, nothing. I was the first one. It wasn't like I needed anyone else to tell me. I was like, I am not buying any more joint juice. Because I was expecting an effect, and the promised effect never happened. Something's wrong. Either I overexpected or they underdelivered. But I'm not going to keep spending money waiting for this and need someone else to tell me, hey, Dave, you should stop buying joint juice. I do not need you to tell me because I expected something to happen, and that something never happened, and I'm alarmed because I don't want to sit here under some false pretense going, well, it's not working. I should never accept a situation where something is supposed to work and I never see signs of it, I should be the first person alarmed. 
that the gospel that is supposed to produce a newness of life, all these qualities that are so annoyingly distant from my own life, I'm like, I, oh, yeah, I would love it if I were patient and I were kind and I were gentle and more, and I would love it if I didn't have to keep a record of wrongs, but I can't help myself. And how come none of these descriptions of the new life in Christ seem to be a part of my life right now? We don't need other people to judge us about that. We should be the ones most critical of that situation because that's signaling to us something didn't take, something is off, and it can be made right, but not if we're in denial and not if we're in defiance. We have to recognize that the Bible holds out a great promise for what the gospel is supposed to produce in us, and when that gospel change is not happening... We need to take our receipt to the customer service department and go, God, I've either got something wrong or something in your gospel is broken. Whatever it is, let's get this right. Because that life which the gospel holds out hope of, that's the life I want. I don't want to be a petty person like Rain Man writing a little journal of every wrong ever done to me as if that's going to do anything good for me. I don't want to be impatient. I don't want to be a jerk to everybody I see. I don't want to be vindictive. I don't want to be unforgiving. I I don't want to be any of those things. I don't want to have conflict in every relationship in my life. I want what the gospel promises, but I'm not getting it. I want to be the first person in line. It should not take someone else to tell me, you know, you're supposed to actually have real peace. If your life is gripped by constant stress and fear and worry... Something is off, and I'm not saying that to you as an accusation or a rebuke. I'm saying, take your receipt, go to God, and go, something's off, God. Because I was supposed to have peace, and I haven't felt peace in for I don't know how long. I'm constantly on edge, constantly afraid, constantly worried. Something is off. Help me, because I either got it wrong or you got it wrong. And I, can I just tell you, I think it's probably the former, not the latter. We probably launched off under some wrong ideas, and God can bring us back. So that thing which is not bearing fruit is cut off, and it should be a signal to us that the fruit is critical. It is one of the proofs of the gospel having taken root, is that fruit is being born somewhere in our life. Now hang on, because we're going to get to what the fruit is, but let's at least establish that fruit is not optional. Fruit is not optional. If you are a Christ follower, you are bearing fruit. That is not, there's not this other category of, I'm a non-fruit-bearing Christian. Sorry, I just don't do the whole fruit thing. Every Christian's fruity. Okay? Do you like that? Every Christian is fruity. Because there's no such thing as a non-fruit-bearing Christian. That is not a species that exists anywhere in God's kingdom. But here's the important thing to know. It is also not a payment for salvation. The fruit we bear is not our price for admission to say to God, see, see, I'm being faithful, I'm doing it, can I get in now? It is not the resume we hold up that says to God, here's my argument for why St. Peter should let me pass the pearly gates. That is not it at all. Our fruit are not our credentials. And this is, I'm surprised, I am amazed at how many people who have been at church for decades still think this is how it works. We're not doing our jobs from the pulpit if that's what people believe out there in the pews. It is not that way at all. Our fruit, the visible manifestation of the gospel in our lives, is not our payment or our argument in our defense for why we should be saved. Look at what what Jesus clearly says in verse 3. You are already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. 
The reason we are acceptable to God, the reason we're going to get in, if you will, is not because we bore fruit, but because we accepted and received the word of the gospel Jesus spoke. It is by faith and only by faith that a person is saved. But the fruit signals something very important about our standing with God with respect to that word of the gospel. In other words, we are not saved because of our fruit, but our fruit is born because we are saved. And that is such a critical distinction to make. Don't ever, ever think I have to show something on the outside to convince God I'm one of the good guys. You're one of the good guys because he has made you one of his. He's accepted you in your foul and broken and fallen state, just like me. We all came to God a mess. We will all finish this life a mess, but we are his mess, spoken for, bought by him. He has made us his simply through faith in the gospel. But the fruit matters a great deal for something else. It's not optional, and it's not a payment. So what is it? What the fruit is. Look at what Jesus says elsewhere in his teaching. He says, no good tree bears bad fruit, nor does a bad tree bear good fruit. And he's not just talking about the health of the fruit, like my dad's apple trees, but the species itself. Each tree is recognized by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorn bushes or grapes from briars. And here's what he's saying. You will know the truth about a tree by looking at its branches. The fruit that hangs is a tip-off to what kind of tree it actually is. Not just the quality of the tree, but an apple tree cannot grow oranges no matter how earnestly it wants to, to have those fruit on its branches. The fruit on the branches of a tree are a visible tip-off to the DNA that is working itself out in the cells. Do you get that? So DNA is invisible to the naked eye, but it controls everything in living organisms. You look the way you look because of DNA. Maybe you're happy about that. Maybe you're not. Some people won the DNA lottery. Others are like, oh, could I borrow some of your DNA because my DNA came up short. But our DNA defines everything people see, except maybe your hairstyle and your clothing. That you could do something about. What you are is determined by what's going on inside, and that has everything to do with ultimately what people see and what they experience when they interact with us. In other words, the good things other people see and experience in us is a tip-off to the good things happening deep inside of us. Fruit is the outer evidence of inner transformation. So you cannot claim that I'm changing deep, deep down inside, but never show on the outside any visible, observable transformation. It may take a little time for the two to catch up, but there's no such thing as true, genuine, deep inner transformation that never shows itself above the surface of our lives. That's just not true. I know you can try to make that claim. If you're a fast talker, you might convince a few people, but theologically, that's simply not the case. And I'm not saying this because there's no permutation of life where someone can make the argument. I'm saying because the Bible tells us, God says it to be true, that if there really is a new life churning inside of our spirit, the presence and the life that Jesus produces as our Savior and our Lord, it's going to show itself 
on the outside because he cannot be contained. He's infinite. And as he begins to churn and rise and live within us, it is impossible for that to be happening and no one ever sees that making any difference on the outside. The good things others see on the outside are the evidence that Jesus is making us new from the inside out. You know, there are a lot of people at Harvest who bear this fruit. I see it. I think in our recent move to the new ministry center, I saw that fruit coming out all over the place. This church looked like an orchard this past month. I mean, so many people, you would not believe, coming out and pouring their hearts out, giving selflessly, expecting no recognition, just diligent, coming in after hours, hit and run when no one was around. They just did things. And I was so grateful to see that. And so the fruit that we bear It's both visible and invisible. It starts deep down inside in a a level you can't see, and it shows itself very naturally. And here's the difference between fruit and a learned behavior. Fruit is what you just, and this is, it's not a, a science, it's more of an art. You know the difference between someone who's really learned hard to behave a certain way and someone who genuinely, naturally is being made different on the inside. See, there are people who have learned very, through, uh, through a great amount of repetition and diligence how to show measure and composure on the outside, but inside there's still a raging storm. Well, Asians especially have specialized in this. They, inside they're like, I'm going to kill you. Outside they're like, oh, hello. How are you today? I'm going to kill you when you turn your back. You know, Asians know how to do that because there's this whole culture of Outside, inside, not agreeing with each other. But real fruit is not a learned behavior. It's when the inside is being transformed, and you feel it. It feels genuine. It feels like it's the real person coming out, not a learned behavior being rehearsed over and over. You know, there's a lot of people at Harvest who are exhibiting this kind of natural fruit. But today, I want to just give a shout-out to someone not at our church who so many of us have interacted with lately who I think really typifies this idea of spiritual fruit. And it's a guy named Steve Zimblicki. How many of you guys have had dealings with Steve Zimblicki in the last month? Okay, so you know, some of, a lot of people who are not here have had frequent dealings with him. He's the property manager at Bright Hope, the new landlords at our new ministry center. And every single time I've interacted with Steve, even when I feel a little bit hesitant because I'm being so annoying, I'm like, sorry, Steve, for my 18th text in the last five minutes, but i got to ask another question because I didn't understand your last answer to my last question. And every time, you could not meet somebody more accommodating, more servant-like, more patient, more generous of spirit. When I asked him, and he doesn't work for us, but when I asked him, you know, he goes, hey, Dave, uh, would you like one of these desks for your new office? And I'm like, I would love that. And it was never discussed between us who would actually transport that desk upstairs. But I just kind of went, yeah, I would love one. And I walked away, and I realized when I was in Asia, I kind of assumed Steve, who doesn't even work for us, would lug that thing up to my room. And the amazing thing was, when I got there, it was in my office. And I just, I see little things like that, and I think this guy, in both what he does and how he is, 
just makes me feel like something has happened in this dude that has made him this way. And I'm not pointing him out like there's no one like that at our church. There's so many people like that at our church. But I just wanted to give a shout out to him and honor this man because he has made our transition over there so much more pleasant than it could have been just by opening their arms to us. He, as a representative of Bright Hope, made us feel welcome in that place. Never once made us feel like we were a nuisance. You know you're seeing good fruit in someone when you think to yourself, if more people were like that person, the world would be a better place. You also know you're seeing good fruit in a person when you think to yourself, I picture that if I met Jesus as a human being, he would remind me a lot of that person. Like There was a similarity there. I picture that's the way Jesus would make people feel if he hung out with them. Maybe another way you know you're seeing good fruit in someone is you say to yourself, I wish I were more like that person, naturally, from the heart. Spiritual fruit, I could give you an exhaustive list. I was tempted to do that. The text contains at least eight points of what this looks like, this fruit. Here's what I want to tell you. I want to keep it simple. Fruit is this. It is both a personal attribute, something that is about me, the way I am, the way I affect other people, and it's also the works I produce because of that. It is both the personal change in the kind of person I am and a change visibly in the impact I make in the world. Both should be considered fruit. And both are the kinds of fruit that God's interested in. He wants to see me become a more Christ-like person, become a different kind of person, but he also wants to see me do something as Jesus would do if he were in the world. And both we can call fruit. Some people try to park on one or the other of those definitions. I think neither one is optional. Both are essential to what we call spiritual fruit. There has to be a change in the kind of person we are. But there has to be a change in the way that we interact with our world, the difference we make, the impact we have on those people around us. And neither one of those can offset an absence in the other. Are you with me? Here's another way of saying it. We can't become really godly people who never do anything to impact our world. And we cannot be world changers who are just such jerks. We never reflect the beauty of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And I've met both kinds of people. There are people who are so lovable, so kind, and they sit there in their lovability and do jack squat for the kingdom of God. They don't touch the world. Their job is just be nice. And I'm like, great, but do something. The world needs to see that image of Christ in you. Stop keeping it a secret to yourself. You can't have fruit by just being a changed person and never touching the world. But I've also met people who are crusaders out there on the front lines. If there's a fight, they're the first one swinging punches. They are changing the world, but you don't want to hang out with them on a long road trip. They're venomous people. They're draining to the soul to be around. They don't remind you of the beauty of our Savior. They remind you of him in the, in the temple clearing out the money changes. Oh, here we go. He's kicking over tables, cracking the whip. And some of us love that side of Jesus, like right on. That's the movie I want to see. I think that's of God, that we want to fight the good fight. But even while we're fighting, we must fight with the beauty and the godliness of our Savior. Neither one of those can excuse or offset the absence of the other. That's what we mean by fruit. And it matters to God that when he looks at us, he sees both kinds of fruit, a changed person and a changed impact on the world around us. 
Okay, are, are you with me? We can drill so much more deeply, but let's keep it there because I think we all get what is, what is being said here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it to a, a, a landing here with this idea of how then we bear this fruit. And here again, man, it could have been multiple points, tedious. I'm not going to do that. We're just going to go right to the heart of it and keep it simple. Jesus makes it clear that a branch, which is us, can bear zero fruit when it's disconnected from the vine, which is Jesus. Okay? In other words, the most vital element to a fruit-bearing branch is its connection to the vine. There is no other thing more important in bearing fruit than a connection that is vital to Jesus Christ. You separate a branch from the vine, that branch will carry all the buds, all the genetics, everything required to bear rich fruit. That branch could be thickly laden with delicious mangoes, but you cut it off from the vine and you get nothing from it. The potential is there. A world of delicious fruit is there, but cut off from the vine, all it will ever be is kindling for the fire. At least it has some usefulness, but the usefulness is not its intended usefulness. That's what Jesus meant when he said that separate from the, the branch, from the vine, the branch cannot bear fruit. The life that Jesus gives, that flows out of him, is critical to bearing fruit and maximizing that new person, that transformed person that is already inside of us. Think about the humble drinking straw. It connects thirsty lips to refreshing beverage. By itself, it's useless. It is not a source of liquid. You can't get a straw from McDonald's and go, oh, I don't need the Coke. I have a straw, thanks. You see, because it's an empty tube worth almost zero apart from the drink. It is when it's inserted to the source of liquid that that straw finds its calling and purpose and becomes infinitely useful. I know that's a simplistic analogy, but it helps me think about who I am with respect to fruit bearing. It's not my job to generate fruit. I have one job as a Christian, and so do you. And I love when it's not six things to memorize, eight bullet points, but one job. So let me give it to you right now. In this fruit-bearing enterprise, you and I, as followers of Jesus, we have one job. You know what that job is? Let me give you a clue, because Jesus gives us a clue. I just gave you a little breadcrumb here. In the first 10 verses of John 15, it's the first 11 verses, 11 times... Jesus uses the same word. In Greek, it's the word meno. It means remain, abide, stay connected, stay rooted, stay put. The one job you and I have as Christians is not to change the world. It's not to make a difference. It's not to speak up for justice. It's not to look like God. That is not our job. It is ultimately what happens in us and through us. God cares about all those things supremely. But the thing he cares about most is this. Are you rooted to your Savior? There is a world of good in you. Your branch is heavy laden with the buds that could bear fruit. But apart from the vine, nothing will grow in you. 
nothing of eternal value or usefulness. You can strain all your life and do a few things, but they won't have any eternal value. The good which God produces in our lives comes only from one thing, and I'm happy about that because if you told me I have to speak and write and think like Oz Guinness or Francis Chan, if I have to be as saintly as Mother Teresa, if I have to make as big a difference as Billy Graham, or I'm like, I'm tired already. I don't know if I could do any of that stuff. If I have to compete against all the other great Christians and think this huge laundry list of things I have to do is what God calls me to do, I'm already defeated before I start. I have one job. You have one job as a Christ follower. If you have to focus on anything, it's this one job. Stay rooted to Jesus. That's your only job. Everything else you think is important, advocacy, justice work, evangelism, discipleship, parenting, all of that, it matters. But you will never succeed at affecting real lasting changes in the world apart from Jesus. What do you think he meant when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing? Because the power, the life that flows into that fruit comes only from him, not from us. We don't generate that. And if you want to bear fruit in your life, The one job you have to focus on every day is staying rooted and connected to Jesus Christ, the source of new life, power, world change, transformation. He is the only source of that change and newness of life. Think about how zealously we plug in our phones at night. You may forget to tuck in your children, to turn off the stove, to close the garage door. You may forget all those things, but I guarantee you, you do not forget to plug in your phone. Why is that? Because the last thing you want to see in the morning as you're heading out the door is, dang it! I need this thing to have power! And it has none. Do you know that most of us walk around regularly with that on our soul? Low power, low power. And we're like, why is this so hard? Why is it so hard to accept the sermons preached on Sunday? Is it because it's theologically an error? No way, man, not here at this church. Never. We speak the truth, but it's not always easy to receive because you need a little juice to not be annoyed by the high calling of the gospel. If you don't stay rooted in Jesus, everything God says he wants from us sounds overwhelming and distressing forgive forget that do you know what they did to me how can you forgive someone stop worrying are you crazy do you know how many you know how scary this world is everything sounds impossible if you have no power a simple text message and you're like um can i send it to you when i get home because i have no power not even for a simple sms message The task is not overwhelming, but I lack the power for even the smallest function. How many of us are walking around every day with a low battery indicator on our spirit, wondering why the simplest thing seems impossible for us? We have one job and one only, and that is to stay rooted in Jesus Christ. Every day, 
expend all effort, use all creativity and innovation for one single-minded task. Connect to Jesus Christ, your Savior, and say, let your life become my life. Let your power flow through me. If I don't have that, my whole life will be an exercise, an A for effort, an F for results. We have to charge regularly because the power we need for the heaviness of this life doesn't come from within. It comes from Him. Remain also means this. When the going gets tough, when you're discouraged by the turn of events in your life and you're tempted to blame God Himself for how bad life feels, to remain, to abide, to stay rooted means you stay loyal even when everything in you screams, cut and run. Same goes for marriage, for friendship, for family, for every important relationship. To remain means to remain, especially when it's hard to remain. There was a time when all the followers of Jesus, all those multitudes who had been fed and saw the miracles, ran away from Jesus. They turned back and no longer followed him. And Jesus says to his twelve, You do not want to leave too, do you? And Peter, of course, as a spokesman, he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Following you is not easy. But who else do we have? Where else could we possibly go? Because you have the words of eternal life. Remaining means staying put even when you want to run away. Let me end with a final warning. God does prune us. It's not a hard thing. That's not an easy thing to hear, but he prunes us. And he doesn't prune as a penalty. He prunes us because we're bearing fruit. If you've ever raised a fruit tree, you know that the branches just keep growing. But not all growth is productive fruit-bearing growth. Every inch of growth in a branch takes up resources. It costs something. And so a good gardener will trim those branches that are not bearing fruit in order to redirect the resources to those branches that are. Practically speaking, what does this mean? That sometimes God will cut away things in our lives that are not morally bad, not harmful, but just not terribly productive. He'll cut away things in our life that are pulling us away, that are taking way too much of our time, our energy, our resources from things that matter for his kingdom. Because we said one day when we began to follow him, you matter most to me, God. I follow you. My life is now wrapped up in your life. Your kingdom is my whole world now. And as we say that, He agrees with us. And when something begins to divert us away from his kingdom, in love he will begin trimming away those branches. And what are these branches he trims away? And I've been thinking to myself this idle thought lately that next time I get a vacation, I'm going to watch every past season of the show 24. I loved that show so much. And I had this nonsensical thought, I'm just going to watch every last season so that I'm caught up in the canon of 
Jack Bauer. Now, that's not morally wrong. Some would argue, yes, it is. It's not like sin. It's just I can't grow that way into a Jack Bauer expert without cost. It takes time. It takes mental energy. It takes willpower and discipline, caffeine, to do something like that. It eats up a vacation, which I don't get that much of. Every growth, every expansion in our lives has a cost, and it eats up something. And sometimes what God will do, because he loves you, is he'll cut away things that are taking too much away from that relationship with him, which matters supremely to us. This Wednesday begins the Lenten season. It's Ash Wednesday. And I want to make an invitation to each of you as we begin Lent. Each year we put out some kind of challenge. This year I want to speak to the whole congregation and I want to implore each one of you to hear and receive this invitation this year. It's a 40-day period in our lives where we have a chance to devote and focus ourselves fully to restoring and guarding this vital connection with Jesus, the vine. We get disconnected so quickly, so often from Him. And every day we're meant to reconnect, recharge, let that life flow through our spirits. So I give you two challenges this Lent, and I hope you will accept both. The first is to fast from something. And here's how I want you to think about fasting. Don't think in terms of deprivation. Think in terms of voluntary pruning. I don't think the things we fast from during Lent are morally bad. If you're fasting from sin, that's nonsense. You're supposed to fast from sin all year round, okay? Like, I'm giving up porn for Lent. Come on! We're fasting from something that is legitimately our freedom, but it takes away from us something that could be devoted to Jesus. And what we're saying for those 40 days is, I say no to this to redirect that time, that energy and focus to you. Lord, you matter to me. I want to be connected to you. And so for these 40 days, this thing which so often occupies much of me, I lay aside, I prune it on my own so that I'm freed up. And that time and that energy and that money is redirected to you. So that's the first challenge. Fast from something that occupies very much of you. Something you'll miss when it's gone. To give you a little bit of hope and sanity, on Sundays we invite you to celebrate by partaking of that thing you've given up in freedom and joy. A a reminder each week that God loves you and is good to you. But outside of Sundays, we invite you to be diligent in pruning away that thing. But here's the, and this may be even more important than fasting, is to feast on Christ. Too often Lent is about missing the thing we gave up. (laughs) Soda, chocolate, coffee. I need it. But you know, we're not just meant to go hungry and go without. But during Lent, it's an opportunity to feast, to gorge on Christ himself. So I invite you during the 40 days of Lent to just roll up your sleeves, pull up to the table and just gorge. 
You know, we talk about binge watching. Try binge Christing. I know it's a weird term. But this Lent, I invite you, God invites you to binge on your Savior, to get carried away, to go overboard a little bit. Maybe it's that Christian book you've been meaning to read forever. Why not in the next 40 days commit to reading it, reflecting on it, growing through it? Maybe it's getting your prayer and devotional life in order once and for all to establish some rhythms that will carry you throughout the year. Maybe there's a major life issue and you want to seek the guidance of God and it's been too noisy, too busy for the Lenten season. Maybe that's the invitation. Is come and seek me. I'll tell you what I want. I will direct your steps. Maybe it's getting caught up and gasp. Maybe it's getting ahead in your Bible reading commitment for the year of just feasting on the Word of God. Maybe it's picking up the new habit of memorizing Scripture in large chunks. I love the concept of Bible memory. And I know that God is inviting me personally to re-engage in that beautiful discipline over Lent. I don't know what else it is. I don't want to give you all the ideas, but here's what I do know. Over the next 40 days of Lent, we're being invited by the Savior to put other things aside and reconnect to the vine. And if we will accept that invitation, I promise you, I promise you in the Lord that as you look at the branches of your life, fruit will start to pop out. People will start to say there's something about you. It's different being around you right now. Thank you for what you did. I appreciate you so much. You'll start hearing things like that because when we connect to the vine, fruit starts to just pop out of us. That's how we grow. That's the one job we have. And over the course of Lent, that is your invitation. Do your one job with wild abandon for 40 days and see what God will do. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.